Amen. It's been lovely to be with you this weekend and to meet some of you, and uh, you've been asking me a lot of questions. And I've been asking some questions of you, and shortly after lunch, there's going to be an opportunity for you to ask me some more questions. And I was reflecting on this kind of process of this group of people sitting, grilling somebody, (laughs) and then voting. And I thought, what other job would do that? I mean, if you were going to be a teacher, could you imagine if they got all the kids in the school assembly and they had to ask you questions and then they voted as to whether or not they wanted you as their teacher? Or a doctor, get all the patients together and grill the doctor on his medical knowledge before they decide whether or not they want to um, employ that person. And I thought the only other job I could think of was a politician. But I didn't want to compare myself with Boris, so... um. (laughs) And you're going to ask me some questions, and I just want to give you a, a little spoiler, okay? I may answer some of your questions in the way that Jesus answered questions. I don't know if you've ever noticed. You can tell that he's Jewish because he always answers a question with a question. And so people will come to him and they'll say, what do you think about this, Jesus? And he says, well, what do you think? What what does the word of God say? And uh, so be prepared if I do that, because I sometimes will. You know, I get asked questions all the time, not just here, I mean all the time. And people from my congregation, to be honest, I think they spend all week trying to come up with the most difficult question they can possibly think of. And they come up to me and they're like, Pastor, what do you think of predestination or can you lose your salvation or one of these kind of big topics but it's like a minute before the service starts and I'm like so I tend to kind of throw it back to them and go well what do you think and then we'll talk about it later but Jesus was always being asked questions and in our passage today we find that Jesus is being questioned Um, just to give you a bit of context because it's one of my my, my pet hates, really, is when people take Scripture out of context and they pluck a verse out. You would never do that, would you? Just pluck a verse out and go, ooh, we like this verse. Um, I, I like the context. I like the background. Um, and so if we're in Matthew chapter 22, then the context would, what's the chapter before? Well, we would say chapter 21, wouldn't we? But, of course, you know that the chapter divisions weren't added till later, right? You know they didn't come till like, the 15th, 16th century. You know that, yes, and not in the original. So Jesus didn't, in chapter 21, he didn't ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know that story. And all the cloaks are being thrown in front. And he didn't get to the temple and go, hey, guys, we're going to take a break because that's the end of chapter 21. And in the morning, we'll come back and do chapter 22. That that's not the way it worked, okay? But they were added later for teaching purposes so that I could say, turn to Matthew 22. Um, so Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and we know that story. And then for four days, he is in Jerusalem, and he's being questioned. 
And some of the religious leaders are coming to him to ask him questions. And we pick up our story. Here we go. It says, when the crowd heard how he taught, they were astonished. They'd never heard anybody like this before. They just completely blew their mind. And that it says that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Now, some of you are reading this going, really, who are these guys? You're familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You know the difference between them? Some of you, yes. Some of you have been in church a while. Some of you, maybe not. Okay, different groups of people within Judaism, and they believe different things. A bit like in the Christian world today. We have people who come from different denominations, right? And we believe different things. And it's exactly the same within Judaism. There was a group called the Sadducees and a group called the Pharisees. And who knows, what didn't the Sadducees believe in? The resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's a terrible one. I know, I'm sorry. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, but the Pharisees did. And so the Sadducees had come to ask a question. And they came to ask a question of Jesus, and they made up this crazy story to basically make fun of the idea of the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus answered their question. Now, I grew up going to church in Sunday school every single Sunday, I mean, to the point that if we, if we went on holiday, my mum would find a church for us to go to, okay? Church was like the most important thing. And I grew up in Sunday school, and my Sunday school teachers taught me that Jesus was loving, and he was a friend to everybody, and he was meek and mild, right? And then Jesus responds to this group of religious leaders who come with this kind of mocking of the resurrection. They ask him this question, and this is loving Jesus, meek and mild. He turns around and says, you are in error because you are ignorant of the scriptures and of the power of God. Wow. Could you imagine if I answered one of your questions like that later? Wow. Incredible. So he silenced them. He smokes these guys. Like he's just like, get out of here. And then a group called the Pharisees come along. Another group within Judaism. Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they as I said, they believe slightly different things. The Sadducees held to a strong hold of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They held to those, a kind of literal interpretation. This was really important. But the Pharisees, they they held to that, but they also believed in what was called the oral law. Kind of these uh, rabbis through the centuries who would add bits, man-made kind of thoughts. And the Pharisees held on to those. And I don't know whether you've ever noticed in the Gospels that Jesus is always having a problem with the Pharisees. You don't often hear the the Sadducees mentioned, do you? It's the Pharisees. Why did he have a problem with the Pharisees? Because of their man-made rules. So when they come to him, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, why do your disciples wash their hands or don't wash their hands in accordance with the tradition of the elders? 
the tradition of the elders, the man-made rules, so Jesus had a problem with them. Do you see how that works? So you have the Sadducees, they get smoked. Jesus says, you're in error. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And the Pharisees then get together, and they're like, we're going to get him. We're going to come up with a question. And so it tells us that one of them came, a lawyer, to ask Jesus a question. Now, when it says a lawyer, this is not kind of how we understand a lawyer, okay? And the question is not kind of, Jesus, have you been injured in an accident recently? (laughs) Have you fallen off your camel recently? This is not the question, okay? A lawyer in in this context is somebody who would write out scripture and talk about it all day long, seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day. And he would just talk about scripture and the law and then the oral law and so this was his his kind of top subject and he comes with a question and he says this rabbi because jesus was a rabbi rabbi which of the commandments in the law is the most important And I wonder how you might answer that question if someone asked you in the high street tomorrow. Which is the most important commandment in the law? What would you say? I wonder. Because some of you might go, well, what do you mean commandments? What's the law? Interesting, right? How might we respond? For me, the law... um, I prefer the Hebrew, which is the word Torah, which actually means instruction and guidance and teaching, which we find in the Old Testament, God's ways, his guide for life. And so the question is, from this expert in the Torah, asking Jesus, which is the most important And of course, Jesus responds, doesn't he, with those famous words, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We we know those words, don't we? Do we know where they're from? He's quoting scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's quoting the Shema, if you know that, the watchword of Israel, the, the confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And if you know that passage, Jesus is quoting this. And he says, this is the most important. And you know, when I think of my own life and I think of ministry, the most important thing for me is my love for God. That is the motivation for everything else that I do. And I think it should be the motivation and foundation for a church. That it's built out of our love for God. And that we try as much as we can to love God with every part of our being. And I know it's hard. And we don't always do it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. So he says, love God with everything that you have. And then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's quoting from Leviticus. And I know some of you think that sounds like some medical ailment. Oh, I've got a Leviticus. It's a book in the Bible. Okay, Leviticus 19.18. He's quoting first from Deuteronomy. Then why is he quoting from 
the law. It's interesting, isn't it? But he's, he's quoting from this. And uh, he says, in essence, love God and love other people. And I think that's the call upon our lives, upon the call of any church. Those are the foundation. Love God and love other people. And it's really interesting because when we reflect upon, um, say, for example, the Ten Commandments. You familiar with the Ten Commandments? If you want to sound really clever the next time you're at a dinner party, say, I was reading the Decalogue the other day. Theologians always give them fancy names, don't they? The Decalogue. The Ten Commandments, we're familiar with them? Okay. Sometimes it's interesting when I go to preach at places and I ask people, okay, well, let's, let's name them, shall we? That always gets a bit fun. I'm sure you guys are on the ball. Do you know what the first one is? Oh, you, you didn't expect a test. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you remember that? Yep, and you should not have uh, uh, make an idol. That was the second one. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You know that one? When I was growing up, okay, I was always taught that that meant you can't say OMG. Right? That was what I was told. You can't say... Actually, when I began to explore it a little more, and when I began to look into the Hebrew, I actually saw that actually I think it means something, not just that, it means something different as well. Can I tell you? The word name in Hebrew means renown or reputation or fame. And so I think it, God is saying, don't disrespect my name, my reputation in the way that you live because you are my representatives here on earth and therefore don't, in the way that you act, don't disrespect me. Does that make sense? It gives it a slightly different understanding to what it's saying. So we have, have no other gods before me. Don't have a, an image like an idol. Don't disrespect or misuse my reputation and keep the Sabbath. The first four, they're related to how I love God, how you love God. The next six are related to how we love other people. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. You know those? Yeah? Do not covet. There's one more. Honor your father and mother. That's a good one, isn't it? Those six are in relation to our relationship with other people. And if I really love you, then I'm not going to lie about you, am I? If I love you, I'm not going to steal from you. Do you see how that works? So actually, even in the Ten Commandments, they're split into love God and love other people. And amazingly, um, the Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans 13. If you know this... Um, uh, incredible letter, the book of Romans. Paul outlines the gospel theologically in the first section, okay, up to the beginning of chapter 12. And then the rest of the book, he gives it practically, ethically. How does this work out in our lives? And he says, don't owe anyone anything. He's just been talking about making sure you pay your taxes. That's an interesting one, isn't it? And so he's saying, look, don't, if you owe taxes, make sure you pay them. 
And he says, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another because, he says, loving one another has fulfilled the law, has, I term it, filled full of meaning, God's ways. Love fills full of meaning, God's ways. And he goes on to say the commandments. It's interesting. He quotes the Ten Commandments here in Romans 13. And he says, look, do not, where it says you shall not steal, you shall not do all those other things. And whatever other command it says is summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. Because love is the fullness of God's ways. It's brilliant, isn't it? So 1,400 years before Jesus, you had Moses getting these words. Then you had Jesus. Now you've got the Apostle Paul. And so for me, this is how we as, a, as churches should be functioning. That we might love like Jesus. Because I want to love like Jesus, don't you? But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard sometimes. I don't know, in my experience, and, and you may agree or disagree, but in my experience, I always find it easier to love God than it is to sometimes love other people especially those people who wind me up and annoy me and frustrate me. I'm sure there are nobody like that in this church that yet rubs you up the wrong way or frustrates you. It's hard, isn't it? It's easy to go, oh, I love God. Oh, yes, I love God. But then you've got to love that person who you don't get on with. And that's a real challenge, isn't it? And so for me, I, I want to love like Jesus because I'm so impressed with him. He's, he's my role model. And when you think about the people that he came in contact with, think about the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? Think about how he interacted with her. She'd been married five times, and the person that she was now living with wasn't her husband. And Jesus could have kind of just gone on the offensive, couldn't he, and just said, you know what, you're out of order. And I love the way Jesus is just like, can I have a drink? It's, it's just incredible how he has this, this conversation with her built around love. And she ends up being one of the first preachers, doesn't she? She runs back to the town and she's like, wow, there's this great guy. Or, or what about that vertically challenged guy called Zacchaeus? Do you remember him? I mean, they, they hated tax collectors, didn't they? Yeah, why? Why did, did you know why they hated tax collectors, anybody? They took more than they should, that's right. But living in the first century in Israel, they were under oppression. The Romans were oppressing them. Okay, and so these Jewish guys who were tax collectors would be taking money from their own people to give to Rome, and they'd be taking some extra. So they'd have these lavish lifestyles. And the people hated them. So much so, in the Bible, they have their own bracket. It says the sinners and tax collectors. They're that hated, they have their own little section. And there is this guy, Zacchaeus, and he's up a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And Jesus appears on the scene. And what does he do? Does he, does he shout at him? Does he have a go at him about being dishonest? Well, actually, no, he says, 
he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea. It's incredible, isn't it? And at the end of this meal that they have, and we don't know what else was said, we don't know what else what Jesus said to him, but at the end of this meal, Zacchaeus says, you know, I'm going to pay back everything that I've owned and more besides. And what does Jesus say? Salvation has come to this house. It's amazing the people that he met. One of my favorite stories, and I don't have time to go into it, otherwise we won't get any time for lunch, the woman caught in adultery. I love that story, and there is so much packed into it. It's an incredible story of that woman. You know the story. Some of you don't. You, this woman gets caught in the act. I mean, how do these pious, holy, religious leaders find her in the act? Were they watching? Guessing their thoughts probably weren't particularly pure while they were doing that. They catch her in the act. They drag her through the streets of Jerusalem. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they say, she deserves to die. What do you say? I mean, the question is, where's the man, right? I mean, that's the question. Why only the woman? I mean, I, I mean, according to the Old Testament, it was supposed to be both, right? So we know it's a trap. We know they're just trying to get him. They're trying to get Jesus. And Jesus brilliantly disperses the crowd. Absolutely amazing. You without sin cast the first stone. And then he turns to this woman and he says, does no one condemn you? Neither do I. It's incredible how Jesus operated in love. He operated in 100% grace and 100% truth. And one of the challenges, I think, for us is how do we do that? How do we operate in that way? I try to do that in pastoral situations. I try to do that in my own life in terms of grace and truth. We need both. We can't have just all one or all the other. I mean, for example, when Jesus said, does no one condemn you, neither do I, to stop at that point, I don't think would be right. Because that would be all grace but no truth. But then to have a go at her and go, well, you need to sort your life out, and you're this, and you're that, and you're the other, and you shouldn't be doing this. That's all the other side. Do you see what I'm saying? So we need a combination of both, and Jesus operated with both. And I always try as much as I can to live my life in that way. And so he says to this lady, does no one condemn you? And I can imagine her looking around, and I imagine she's got tears in her eyes, because she knows she's going to die. How would you feel if you knew you were about to have rocks thrown at your head and there was no way out? And she, I imagine, she's in tears. And I imagine she kind of wipes the tears away and she looks around and no one's there. And I imagine in her brain it's going, am I going to get a free pass? And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. But, he says, go and sin no more. 100% grace and 100% truth matched together with this incredible love. And it's amazing. And as I think about it and as I reflect on it, the question is, how can I love like Jesus? How can I and we love one another? And as I finish, I just want to tell you a story of what this looks like or might look like. And I heard the story of a pastor 
and he lived in Argentina. And he was preparing his sermon that week, and as, as he's preparing it, it was going to be on the subject of love. So he'd got it all theologically correct. He was there on Saturday night getting himself ready, and he felt the Lord say to him, I don't want you to preach that message. And if any of you have done any preaching, um, it can be quite disconcerting when you've put on all this prep and then suddenly God says, I want you to do something else. And so he's wrestling with this um, and he says, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to sleep on it. Wakes up in Sunday morning and he could not shake the idea that he wasn't supposed to preach his message. And so he goes to church, and he's there in the worship time before the sermon, and, and God's going, don't do it. Don't preach that message. And he's like, but God, I've put all this effort in. He finally gets to the time for the sermon, and he stands up, and he opens his Bible, and he says, the text today is love one another. He closes his Bible, and he sits down. And there's a silence around the church. People are like, is that it? Is that it? Is that the sermon? And then after <clears throat> about five minutes, he stands up again and he opens his Bible. He says, the text today is love one another. He closes his Bible and he sits down. And there are people in the congregation, they're like, he's finally lost it mad the worship leader's like shall we sing another song and he's like no it's fine after another five minutes of just sitting there in silence he stands up he opens his bible he says the text today is love one another he closes his bible and he sits down and finally, somebody gets out of their chair. They walk across the room. They go up to somebody and they say, how can I show you love today? And gradually, people began to get out of their seats and began to move around the church and talk to people and say, how can I show you love? How can I show you acceptance? The pastor told the story that that morning, there were 11 people in the congregation that were unemployed. And all 11 went home with a job that day. For the next six months, every Sunday morning, the pastor would stand up, he would open his Bible, he would say, the text today is love one another. He would close his Bible and he would sit down. And the church would go to work, getting out of their seats, how can I help you? What do you need? How can I love you? Now, during that time, there were some people who weren't happy. And they came to the pastor and they said, look, we're not paying you to just stand up there and say, love one another. We're paying you to preach the gospel. And he said, I am. And they left the church. Six months later, the pastor stood up and he said to the church, we have a new text today. And there was a ripple of applause around the church. And the pastor opened his Bible and he said, the text today is love your neighbor as yourself. And he closed his Bible and he sat down. 
And, and it took a moment before a lady on the front row stood up and she turned and walked down the aisle and out through the door, closely followed by more and more until everybody had left the building. And they all went home, and when they got home, they went next door. And they knocked on their neighbor's door, and they said, how can we show you love today? We're from the local church. What can we do to help you? People started to phone up the church. The pastor said that people were asking, is this the church that cares? Is this the church that loves he says it was the single most effective form of evangelism he's ever seen when a church was mobilized to love God and to love one another. And for me, that is the foundation of any church that the, we fall in love with God more and more and that we love each other and that explodes into our community. And so how do we do that? How do we fall more in love with Jesus? Well, there are a variety of ways. I'm sure you know some of those in terms of word and spending time in prayer. You know, but for me, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. The more I fix my eyes on him, the more I fall in love with him. And the more I fall in love with him, the more I'm going to want to serve him and do all those things. Um, I just... I want to tell people about him, and I want to help, and I want to do, you know, it, it just comes naturally, doesn't it? Yeah, if you're in love with somebody, if you've got a husband, a wife, a partner, if you're in love with them, you, you want to do stuff for them, right? You, you don't always need to have your arm twisted, do you? The idea that you want to do it for them. We want to do things for Jesus because we love him. And so, for me, it's about fixing our eyes on him. And as I finish, that wonderful passage in Hebrews, you'll know, about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him who endured such suffering so that we do not grow weary or lose heart. Friends, for me... Love is the answer as we fix our eyes on him. I'm going to ask the musicians if they'll come back. And we're going to sing that beautiful song that has those words, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.